The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. As we continue on, we're in this series on the Holy Spirit, and I, so I came across this incredible story this week. Uh, that uh, gets at the heart of this psalm right away. And it's about a man named Adolf Aikman. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Aikman before. Uh, He was a member of the Nazi party and one of the, the masterminds behind the German Holocaust. And that means that he helped orchestrate the destruction and the murder of so many people, all the things that took place in the Nazi death camps. Sometime after the war, in 1961, uh, Eichmann was put to trial for what he had done. And during his trial, this is incredible, during his trial, one of the victims of the death camps that Eichmann set up testified against him. This man's name was Yahil Danur. Just pause for a moment and just imagine. I, none of us can imagine, but, but we can try to imagine what it might have been like and some of the emotions that Danur would have felt as he walked into that courtroom to see, after so many years, the face of a man that had been the behind-the-scenes puppet and the murder and the devastation of so many people that he would have known. Could you just imagine that? How would you have responded? Would it, would it have been a visible anger? Would you have run at, the, at, at, at Aikman? Would you have tried to, to just strangle him right then and there? I, I, don't, I don't know what I would have done. But this was obviously very emotional and very overwhelming for Denor, so much so that during his testimony, he collapsed on the floor of the courtroom and started shaking and then fainted. But when Denor was interviewed about this about 20 years after the trial on the show 60 Minutes by Mike Wallace, he was interviewed and he was asked about this. He was asked about what his reaction was to Aikman. What was going through his mind when he saw him? What caused him to faint? And one news article puts it so bluntly. It says, was Denor overcome by hatred? By fear? By horrid memories? No. It was none of those things. Rather, as Denur explained to Wallace, all at once he realized that Aikman was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many people to their deaths. This Aikman was an ordinary man. Denur says this, and I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing this. I am exactly like him. Isn't that crazy? How how could he say something like that, that he was exactly like him? What Denor observed is so striking. He looked at Aikman and he saw himself. The burning question for us today is, have you ever faced yourself before? 
Have you ever recognized what you are capable of or what you have done that we're all capable of? See, what I've learned from life in ministry so far, it's not much, it's growing, but <laughs> is that we all come to this point at some point in our lives. We will all eventually face ourselves with nowhere to run. Whether that's at a hospital, hospital bed near the end of our lives, whether it's when our life flashes before our eyes, before a, a, a you know, car accident or something, an accident of some, some sort, or if it's after, after you've done something terribly wrong and are, are facing the consequences of it, we will all eventually come face to face with ourselves. What are we going to do? How can we face ourselves? You see, David has this happen to him in this psalm. And the crazy thing is, is that for David, he actually doesn't just face himself, but he comes out the other side a joyful and clean person. He faces his true self, and he ends up with joy. And I think David paints us a map for how we are able to do exactly this— to face ourselves on a daily basis and to come out the other side different people, more joyful people, more changed people. Like Denor, we, we will eventually come to grips with ourselves. We will face ourselves and we can choose to do that in a way that actually leads us to a better place. So what is the secret to facing your sin? To facing your own brokenness and coming out the other side? Well, I think that there's four things that David does in this psalm. Four things that he shows us that we have to do when we face our sin and brokenness. And just a huge side note, you know, we're, we're in this series called Echoes of the Holy Spirit. And so we're looking at Old Testament passages that teach us about the Holy Spirit and how it's active in our lives. And, um, and the Holy Spirit is all over this process from start to finish. We have no hope in facing ourselves and facing our sin and overcoming it without the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so I might not mention the Holy Spirit a ton in this actual sermon, but just know that it is saturated in everything. So what are the four things? First, we must let our sin be exposed then we have to take full responsibility for our sin. Then we must repent of it, and then we must let ourselves be cleansed. So, let our sin be exposed, take responsibility for it, repent of it, and let ourselves be cleansed. So first, let our sin be exposed. The backstory to this psalm, some of you may know it, some of you may not. Um, it's it, the, I think the subtitle in most of our Bibles says something like this. Um, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so the story goes like this. This is the gist of it. David falls for a beautiful woman that he sees from his palace balcony. And he has her brought, brought to him and he has an affair with, with her. And uh, it just so happens that Bathsheba's married. And Bathsheba's actually married to one of David's closest friends. 
Uriah the Hittite. You see, when David was on the run from, from King Saul, David, um, you know, when he was a young boy, he was brought into the palace, anointed as the next king of Israel. And so, um, but then Saul gets jealous of David. And David is forced out of the palace and on the run. And, and as David's on the run, he has this, like, epic band of, you know, there's, like, only 30 or 60 of them or something like that, where, where they're, like, these— incredibly skilled warriors that are devoted to David and that want to see him protected. And Uriah is one of these people. And so David literally owes this man his life. Without Uriah around and and Uriah's companions, David would not have survived the onslaught by Saul. And so David has this affair with Bathsheba and everything is private and under under the carpet until Bathsheba sends word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And now all of a sudden there's this this thing that David has to deal with. And so David sends for Uriah, who is on the front lines of of battle, and and has Uriah come to him to provide an update for the battle. And uh, with with the intentions of having him be with his wife. And so David, you know, entertains him, fills him up with food, and says, you know, you've, you've had a long, long season. Why don't you go take a break, go home, have a chill night. And uh, Uriah does not do it. He says, I will not be comfortable while my men are on the battlefield. And so he sleeps outside his house. And then the next day, David has him brought again to the palace, and he tries again. So he gets him, he stuffs him with food, he gets him drunk, and he sends him home to be with his wife. And again, Uriah says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to not um, break the camaraderie I have with my fellow, um, fellow men out on the front lines. And so then David takes drastic action and he sends word to allow Uriah to go on the front lines of battle and for everyone else to draw back so that Uriah would be killed. This is David. This is a man who was anointed by God. And he did this so broken, so wrong. And he doesn't think that anything is wrong with it. He actually goes on with his life. He, you know, once Bathsheba's done mourning, he invites her into the palace. Everything's fine until God intervenes. God, through his Holy Spirit, sends Nathan the prophet to convict David of his sin. And he, David it tells or Nathan tells David that this parable that, that convicts David of his sin. But the gist of it is this. David needs a Nathan. And so do we. Who are your Nathans? Who are the people that are close enough to you that, you, that point out your sin? Remember, I mentioned this just a second ago. David, this is David we're talking about. This is a man who is described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. And he needed a Nathan to convict him of his sin. How, we, of course we would need Nathans. And who are they? You know, this is harder than it sounds. Because many of us get defensive when our sin is exposed to us. Many, it's not often easy to hear. And often it even comes with consequences. But, you know, we are on this journey with Jesus. And 
the journey of Jesus is to become more and more like Jesus every day. And God sends us Nathans to help us along this journey, to face ourselves. We can't do it without them. We need the Nathans. Who are they? Name them. Think about them for yourself. This is probably the most important point that, that, we, that we miss as Christians is that we need people that are speaking into our lives. Second thing is that David takes responsibility for his sin. He owns it, right? He doesn't deflect. He takes the full responsibility. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. That is a language of somebody who is actually owning it, taking responsibility for his sin. David doesn't try to reflect or, sorry, deflect or to blame people for it. He has the courage to face it. Yeah, our reaction when our sin is exposed is often to shift the blame, you know, blaming our parents for the way that they brought us up, blaming our culture, blaming other people, or to try to diminish it. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, I'm not that bad compared to so-and-so. So, as, and as I was reflecting on this sermon, I, you know, a bit of honesty time, I think my natural tendency when I'm confronted with sin is to um, is, to, is to try to just shrink it down to a manageable bite size that I can work on. <laughs> you know, it, oh, you know, like when, for, for example, if it's, if it's yelling at my kids, or if it's bending the truth uh, for my benefit, or if it's to, you know, I just, I shrug it off as, as no big deal, and tell myself a bunch of half-truths. You know, oh, I think it's not that bad. When, when I compare myself to, to other parents, you know, I don't yell at my kids that often, so I'll just work on it. Which is true, but it doesn't make my actions okay. You know, everybody yells at their kids from time to time, so that, that, that's fine, which is true, but that doesn't make it okay. You know, if knowing Jesus and being like him is what we were made for, then any sin that we have gets in the way of that, no matter how big or how small. And deflecting it or minimizing it gets us absolutely nowhere. And in fact, it will just rear itself again in some other ugly place in our lives. We have to not only have our sin exposed, but we have to face our sin and take full responsibility for it before God. It's on us. Third thing that David does in this psalm is he actually repents of his sin. Now, it's not explicitly mentioned in this psalm, but, but I just want to read a few, few verses, and, and you'll see what, what repentance is in this psalm. David, verse 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. And verses 10 to 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is all repentance language because repentance is, is a unique word in the scriptures. It doesn't just mean saying sorry or, 
offering some sort of verbal apology. Repentance is actually an inner attitude. Now, I, we're, I'm learning in parenting how, how hard it is to not only embody repentance, but also to teach repentance to kids. We're trying to teach Austin how to say sorry and to not do the things that he's, he's doing, aka smothering his little sister. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's striking to me how different repentance is from sorry. Sorry is an outward, oh, I hope that you forgive me and don't hold this against me. But repentance looks at our heart. And in the original Hebrew, the word for repentance actually inv- it invokes a physical turning. Right? It, it, it's, the, the word is used in other places to describe a person who is walking in one direction and makes an intentional decision to turn around and try their best at walking in the other direction. And the idea is that, you know, if you're, if you're going on a journey and you go one way and you're walking and you're walking and you're walking and all of a sudden you learn that the way that you're going is the wrong way, it would be incredibly prudent and even um, productive for you to stop, for you to turn around, and for you to walk back the way that you came so that you could get on the right path. And that's exactly what repentance is. It's an inner attitude inside us that recognizes that we are on the wrong path and that we will do our best that we can to turn ourselves and to walk the other direction. Now, if any Um, part in this process, in these four things this morning that we're looking at, needs prayer. It's repentance. Am I right? We have a hard time turning around. And we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us to repent. And I think we do this even in our confession time, where we have a call to confession, where we pause and we reflect. But then we go through a prayer of confession where we name the fact that we need the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in a new way. And guess what? That's exactly what David is praying about. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Sustain me for, sustain him for the journey of repentance. And the last thing that I want to talk about this morning is that David allows himself to be cleansed. David asks God to cleanse him, to make him clean. Wash me, he says, and I'll be as white as snow. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And this cleansing language I learned this week points to an ancient practice in Israel where um, if the home of a person who has died um, or a person who had been sick uh, in ancient Israel, uh, sickness and death was defilement. They, a person who was sick or in the presence of somebody who died could not also be in the presence of the Lord. And so before the person were to, was to be able to be in the presence of the Lord again, to, to worship in the tabernacle, they would have to have the priest come and sprinkle their tent with water, with clean water. As a, as a symbol of the, the defilement being washed away, the death being washed away from their tent, that they may again be restored to the presence of God. And it's this that David is alluding to. He is asking God to wash him from his defilement. 
And the question that we get to, though, is how? It's not named in this psalm what God, how, how can God do this? How can God just wash David and he'll be clean? And the, the commentators that I would be reading is that, say that this is, you know, David is, uh, is crying out to God to do something with his sin, to cleanse him, and he doesn't have language for how, but we do. We do. You see, when Jesus Christ came to earth, he was washed, though he didn't sin. And commentators will tell you that Jesus was baptized, you know, baptism is a symbol of of our cleansing. Baptized, not because he was a sinner, but to identify with sinners. And Jesus is the one who who is the righteous one. He is the one who did not need to be sprinkled with water because he, he is clean. He's the definition of clean. And yet he identified with us and went to the cross to die, to take on our sin. So that all who come to Jesus, who are baptized into his name, are washed, are cleansed once and for all. And so we can let ourselves experience this when we confess our sin, when we repent of it, we can know that, that none of it will be held against us because it all fell on him. Jesus Christ is our Savior. I love how Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says to the Corinthian church, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. It's done. It's in the past. This is the most freeing thing that you and I will ever hear, and it's, the, it's what we need to have the courage. We need to know that there's nothing, nothing in the world that can separate us from the love of Christ to be able to actually repent, to actually let our sin be named, to actually take responsibility for it, that it will all lead us closer to him. I've had the privilege of, and I say privilege, not lightly, I've had the privilege of sitting at the bedside of some of the members of this church as they've uh, been passing away. And I've learned that that is sacred space. And, but one of the most striking things is that people who are at the end of their life, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And to, to be able to be in that place to face to face yourself and to know deep down that you are clean before God is the most peaceful and joyful place that we can ever be that anyone can ever be and I've sat beside people who know that and it's so striking And it's what I want with all my heart, and I know that it's what I have. And and we I know that it's what I have because we we come to the table to remember it. To remember that Jesus Christ died so that we don't have to, so that so that we could be invited as beloved guests to his feast, which is a foretaste of the great feast that is to come for all of us. See, the Lord's Supper testifies to all who are truly sorry for their sins who come to Jesus to receive forgiveness, that it's a gift, it's a grace, and it nourishes our hearts and sends us out 
with joy. And so let's come to the table together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us gifts like this psalm that teach us the way that we can face ourselves and come out the other side as joyful people. We thank you for Jesus, the righteous one, who let himself be defiled by our sin and our brokenness so that we could be clean. And Father, as we come around this table together as sinners saved by grace, help us by your Spirit to let the bread and the cup nourish our hearts, to encourage us and to give us what we need to be able to to do the work of facing our sin, of taking responsibility for our sin, of repenting of our sin, and walking out with joy. Father, we need your Holy Spirit for this. So I pray that you send your Spirit upon this place. To those who are sitting in the pews, I pray that you just pour your Spirit out on us. To those who are watching online, Father, I pray the same thing. I pray that you would just nourish us in your Holy Spirit. As you did on that day of Pentecost, Father, pour it out on us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.